Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Miss Lynn Alden, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Happy to be back. Thanks for having me again. Glad to have you again. Um, we're going to continue our conversation on this IMF paper titled The Liquidation of Government Debt. And last time we left off, um, I think right around, I'm on page 10 in this PDF in table one, which is titled, uh, the United States selected financial regulations, 1930s through the 1980s. And <clears throat> what it looks like to me is they're basically, the authors are going through and laying out um, the actual financial regulations used to liquidate this government debt. So the actual mechanical um, things that were used to, to discharge the debt. And I'll just go through and name them real quick, and then I would love for you to, to jump in and, and expand where you see fit here. First one they label is government securities price support. Then they have exchange of marketable for non-marketable debt. Interest rate ceilings, margin requirements, gold restrictions, dash capital controls, and finally, moral suasion. And it seems like the mm, a lot of what they're doing here is trying to get market actors to hold government securities. Does Pretty that, much, yeah. yeah. And and you know, when you're comparing government securities to other assets, right? There's there's other things you're kind of competing with, like bank deposits and things like that. And so when they control one thing, they kind of have to control the full spectrum. Uh, to make sure that there's no competitors that are really obviously better, right? and so what they did was they they banned gold, right? So they take add away the options, right? Yeah, yeah, take away the options or at least add friction. So they they banned gold, uh, which which as we covered before was hard to enforce, but it it certainly lowers the desirability of gold now that it's like a you know a, a contraband, you know it, now it's like an illegal substance. Um, so you you basically reduce the attractiveness of gold. Uh, and then when you're focusing on remaining interest rates, uh, the the key pillar is yield curve control, uh, which would they describe here as government securities price support. Uh, and so basically during during the 1940s, 
the Federal Reserve made an agreement with the Treasury and said that they will basically do yield curve control on the entire Treasury curve. So the short end of the curve, they were willing to – they basically had an unlimited bid. They could Because they can print money and they can print base money, they can have an unlimited bid to buy Treasuries if they start to go uh, above a certain yield, which means below a certain price. Uh, and it, because it's an unlimited bid, um, you know, assuming that they stick with it, that can override all market forces. Um, and of course, the the only constraint to that is that you lose you lose value of the currency. Uh, but that's why they then go and block the exits as much as possible. So what they did was they you know for short end treasuries, short duration treasuries, they would lock them at three eighths of a percent, uh, and for long duration treasuries, they were locked them at two point five percent. And so so the whole kind of risk free government bond, you know, yield curve was a, a positive curve. That was submerged below the inflation rate, and they would support that by buying those bonds. And in the beginning, they had to buy a ton of them. Um, but eventually, the market kind of understands that this is not going anywhere, and so they they start just holding it. Because if you're if you accept the fact that you're stuck in this environment, then it becomes a question of okay, what is better than the other? Uh, and so, for example, they say, okay, well, if the short end, if the short end is near zero, I might as well buy the long end because at least I'll get some yield in this otherwise, you know, it's, it's less negative in real terms if you have the longer end. And there's basically, you know, they start viewing it as a positive because there's no downside to that bond. Norm normally the downside of long duration treasury bonds, you know, you're, you're still nominally risk-free. Um, you generally have higher interest rates unless you're in a period of yield curve inversion, but the downside is you have more volatility, right? You could, you could lose quite a bit of value in a short period of time if the yields go up. But if there's yield curve control, Suddenly, those long-duration bonds are pretty attractive, and that's actually what makes the 1940s different than the 70s. So in the 70s, the way to protect yourself, other than owning things like gold and commodities and things like that, if you if you had to be in bonds, you'd want to own the short end because the short end could keep adjusting. You know, every three months or so, let's say you're holding three-month T-bills, you, you know, as the rates rose with inflation, which is what happened in the 70s because debt was low and they're trying to, to quell inflation, they weren't really doing financial pressure anymore. Um, it was smart to hold the short end of the curve because you you kept you know your your rate would constantly adjust higher uh, to keep up with inflation more or less. Whereas in the 40s, because they were doing yield curve control, it was actually made more sense to hold the long end of the curve because if if you were stuck holding zero or holding 2.5 percent while inflation's averaging six percent, given the choice, you'd you'd pick 2.5 percent. Uh, and so it created a different dynamic for what part of the treasury curve was attractive. And basically, it makes it so that once market participants understand that that's the environment that they're in, and that the exit doors are blocked, they start, you know, they, they start controlling the pricing for the Fed. I mean, every time yields would try to get above a certain value, the commercial banks would just buy those treasuries because they know that if they persistently stay above that value, they can just sell them to the Fed and get a spread uh, on the price. Uh, and so the market starts kind of policing itself um, once they determine that the central bank is credible. Uh, and that you know that basically they will backstop anytime it does start to persistently go above that level. That's kind of the key thing is that credibility, which is of course is kind of a in this in this sense a bad type of credibility. You know the credibility that they're going to continue with their price controls essentially. Um, but once they understand that's going to happen, they start self-policing. And so that's the key thing. That's kind of what makes the whole thing work, along with blocking the exits. And then from there, they say, okay, well. Now we want to make it so that there's restrictions on deposits. There's restrictions on on margins. Uh, of course, gold is banned. 
uh, and then we use various either regulations, either force the banks to do something or heavily suggest to the banks that they that they do something like hold hold treasuries. Um, and so those are essentially the toolbox for ensuring that rates are below the prevailing inflation rate, which which helps liquidate that government debt. Wow, well, it's uh, quite interesting. So this idea of once market participants kind of accept the position or situation or to use a stronger word, maybe the trap that they're in, they just um, realize that they're incentivized to buy the lesser of two evils, I guess. You, you just buy the long end of the curve because it yields more because you have no other option versus- Yeah, pretty much. But then you said in these in certain environments, like I guess probably like the environment we're in today, where rates are ticking upward, that there you can have an incentive to hold the shorter term duration, just so you can you can adjust every three months. Is that right? At least, yeah, currently, right. So in the, in the seventies, uh, short term rates would adjust higher, and so you wouldn't get you know if you hold a long duration treasury and you lock it in for ten years, uh, you know that's not going to adjust on a regular basis. You have one or two choices: either sit there and hold it. And you know you're stuck at a low rate since before inflation began, and now that inflation's here, well, that's you know that's still the original bond that you're holding, or you can sell it at a loss because the market adjusts and now is is pricing that at a higher rate, which means they're buying the bond at a discount from you, uh, and so people have a you know either a real or a nominal loss on their long duration bonds, uh, while the short term stuff is better because it it doesn't really lose value and it keeps adjusting higher. That's that's in the 70s. In the 40s, when the short end was locked as well, it actually made more sense to hold the long end. In the current environment, you know, in, in the very near sense, it has been better to hold short duration stuff. So it's been better to hold cash. It's better to hold short duration treasuries um, because the long end has lost value. Um, uh, but I think, you know, in this environment, we're still early in the story, right? Um, you know, the, the, the Fed has not committed to yield curve control yet. Uh, and so I think, you know, this story is not fully written uh, and it remains to be seen what part of the curve will make sense to hold for the long, you know, for the whole the whole decade, let's say. Um, if yields stop going up uh, and they start to, you know, continue with their financial oppression to some extent, uh, then it'll start to accumulate where it's better to hold the long end of the curve generally. Um, but but of course, it, the whole spectrum is risky because you're you're almost certainly going to lose out in real terms either way. And the closest example we're seeing now is Japan. I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones doing formal hard yield curve control where they're holding the front end of the curve slightly negative, uh, and then they're pinning the 10-year uh, Japanese gov government bond at 0.25%, which is much lower than the US did during the 1940s. Um, and uh, they have much higher government debt uh, as the US had back then. Um, and so they're, they're pinning that pretty aggressively. And in the beginning, you know, I mean, during this kind of early part, the market has been fighting it pretty hard. Uh, but at least as of this recording, that's died down a little bit because the market seems to be currently accepting that the that the BOJ is going to protect that spot. Uh, but again, that's still pretty early in its overall defense of that peg. And so I think that there could be later rounds of the market really trying to see if the Bank of Japan is serious about holding that peg or not. Because like I said before, a lot of it comes down to the market's understanding of, of how serious the central bank is at holding that line. Yeah, it makes sense. So we have the, the central bank as uh, a large and significant interventionist into the market space. So market participants need to know that they're not bluffing, right? To really 
yeah. kind of adapt to the interventions that they're enforcing. Um, and we've seen some examples, like early on in the in the pandemic, we saw, for example, Australia was was pegging one of its shorter duration treasuries, and they eventually gave up that peg, right? So it does make sense for the market in the beginning to really test it out. They see, are you actually serious about this? Like, are you willing to let your currency devalue at all cost in order to maintain this peg? And so it makes sense that they're gonna they're gonna attack that aggressively to see how serious it is. And what makes it different from a, you know, if you think of like George Soros attacking the Bank of England, that is a breakable peg, uh, objectively, because they're you know they're they're pegging it to a foreign currency, uh, which means they're limited by how much foreign reserves they have to maintain that peg. Whereas if you're defending a yield target, they technically have unlimited ammo. They can never run out of ammo. Their only limit is how much they're subjectively willing to let their currency fall, uh, if they're willing to let that get disorderly or not. And so in this sense, the, you know, the market has to concede that the central bank can always win no matter what, but it still makes sense for them to try it to see if the central bank has the, you know, the gumption to stick with it, uh, that basically they're willing to let their currency fall pretty rapidly in order to defend it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um... Uh, so this is essentially price fixing, I guess, um, that they're basically fixing the price of these bonds through open market activities with printed money, right? You're printing money to buy the bonds to get the interest rates where you want them, where the policy is determined they should be for liquidating government debt in, in, this, in these instances that we're covering. Are, so all of the, I guess the, the through line between all of these regulations or these approaches are that they are aimed specifically at increasing reservation demand for government bonds. So getting people to hold government bonds as a store of value. And then while simultaneously the government can then debase the currency to liquidate debts. So it's getting people into these government bonds and then creating negative real yield environments as the channel of liquidation. Is that correct? Yes. And it comes in degrees. So for example, in the United States, since, you know, over the past decade, since the global financial crisis, you know, we've been in an environment, at least the short end has been below the inflation rate for the vast majority of this time. There's only a brief, a, only a brief period of time where they got the short end above the inflation rate. So, so so the market has, without formal yield curve control, the market has basically allowed the the you know the the Fed to hold rates below the prevailing inflation rate without rapidly selling its currency. And of course, you have Europe doing that, you have Japan doing that, you have you have all the major developed uh, country currencies doing that, and they, that's been a pretty soft variety of financial oppression. Uh, that's been a pretty disinflationary environment, basically a period of commodity oversupply. Uh, and so it's been a less acutely inflationary period. And basically, the, the, essentially, the risk-free cost of capital has been in that kind of, you know, if you, to the extent that you believe the CPI figure, somewhere around negative 2% on average. Uh, if you go a little bit above that to, to assume that the CPI is understating it, as, as many other kind of analysis would show, you know, it could be negative 3%, negative 4%, especially during that disinflationary period. Uh, and that's, that's been a, you know, kind of a compounding factor when debt gets that high. Basically, it's either going to default in real terms or nominal terms. And so that this whole decade's been this kind of slow, real default where everyone's everyone's getting a small haircut rather than any sort of big, you know, kind of nominal 
defaults, liquidations happening. That's, that's both public and private debt in general. Uh, but now that we're ending the more inflationary period, now it's getting a little bit feisty, right? So now we're, we're much deeper below uh, interest rates below the official inflation rate. And now the central bank is, is at least arguing that they're serious about trying to control that. And so we're seeing, you know, we're, we're you know, the 1940s are easy to analyze in hindsight, but imagine, imagine living through it, right? You didn't know that yield curve control was going to last like a decade. Uh, you didn't know how the war was going to turn out. There's all sorts of unknowns when you're early on in that period. And we're kind of finding ourselves in that same period now where we're, we're seeing how serious they are about this. And we also see in Europe, I wrote a piece uh, you know, probably like a month ago about how Europe, the European Central Bank is pretty trapped, uh, where kind of like Japan, they are forced to do some degree of yield curve control, um, but they're doing it slightly differently. So, so whereas Japan is managing you know, one country, one currency, and they're doing formal yield curve control similar to what the United States did in 1940s, Europe is not doing formal yield curve control, but they have a now they have a tool in place to manage spreads. And so, for example, Italy has 150% debt to GDP. Uh, nobody wants to buy the foreign debt at rates that are below the inflation rate. Um, Italy does not have its own central bank, so it can't print its own money and unilaterally support its debt. So it's relied on the ECB because they're part of that currency union. And so now they have this, this formal spread control where the ECB is ostensibly trying to raise rates a little bit. Uh, you know, ironically, they raised them up to zero. Um, and so they're still deeply negative, uh, but they are slightly hiking rates, but they still have that bond buying tool in place because they know that if they completely give up any sort of bond buying, uh, you know, foreign investors or the bond market can throw a fit and cause another fiscal spiral for Italy. And so they're in that weird position where regardless of what inflation is and what interest rates are, they have to buy the debt and they can, you know, they can do yield curve control, they can do spread control, they can just keep doing QE. There's different ways to, to manage it, but it ultimately involves using the balance sheet as a big tool. Interesting. So it sounds like instead of letting, you know, the, these economies get to a point of excessive leverage where there has to be something, there has to be a change, there has to be a default or, you know, a big increase in revenue, something to change the, uh, the debt ratios, frankly. And I guess it sounds like policymakers are using these liquidation, well, let's say these regulations aimed at liquidation of government debt to kind of crash land these economies rather than just letting them crash, right? Um, and I, I want to pick your brain a little bit on, so you mentioned limited versus unlimited ammo. So I'm assuming someone like the Federal Reserve, right? Obviously, they have unlimited ammo. They just print dollars. Uh, and, and keep this scheme running, or someone like Italy doesn't have that because they're part of a currency union. Is this another, because, okay, so in Japan, for instance, I'm sure this is obviously hurting savers in the local economy. They're then trying to escape into dollars or anything else uh, to the best of their ability. So does this, I, the general question I want to ask you is like, this all seems to reinforce or support the exorbitant privilege that the Fed has, that when you start um, liquidating these government debts in different areas, you're creating more demand for the most credible or the most unlimited ammunition central bank, which I think would be the Fed. Um, but what are your thoughts about that? I think that's a good way to describe it, but to be a little bit more specific, it you know, to what extent they have ammo depends on what specifically they're trying to control. 
if they're trying to peg their currency to something else, like another currency, they have limited ammo. And an example right now is that Hong Kong uh, pegs their currency to the dollar. And so if, if, if there's a lot of capital inflows and the Hong Kong dollar strengthening, they have to you know, buy dollar assets uh, in order to prevent their currency from breaking upward. And, and there appeared a time where they had to do that, and they, they accumulated a ton of reserves. They printed a lot of Hong Kong dollars, uh, and they bought a lot of dollar-based assets. Uh, currently, uh, in, in, this, in this current environment, uh, the opposite's happening. Uh, and so a lot of investors went out of Hong Kong for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so in order to defend the peg, they've had to rapidly sell uh, their reserves in order to defend that peg. And that's, an, you know, they have a lot of ammo, but it's, it's not infinite. They, they have a, you know, a finite amount of foreign exchange reserves, specifically dollar assets, that they can sell to defend that peg. Um, whereas if a, if a country is trying to defend a rate on its bonds, uh, it's not targeting an external currency. It's merely targeting its own currency, specifically it's targeting its own level of essentially currency de devaluation. And so any, any central bank has infinite ammo, uh, technically, to, to defend that peg on its own currency, right? So the Fed has unlimited ammo if it wants to yield curve control on treasuries. The Bank of Japan has unlimited ammo on JGBs. Uh, the ECB even has unlimited ammo uh, if it wants to protect any, any country's um, bonds. The difference there is that the, the government cannot force the central bank to do it like, like, the, like it could happen in, in Japan or the United States. So in the United States, if it gets bad enough, Congress can just write a new rule saying that the Fed has to do it. Uh, in Japan, you know, the government can write a new rule saying Bank, Bank of Japan has to do it. What makes ECB a little bit different is that because you know they have a shared currency union, ECB can has unlimited ammo, but Italy can't force the ECB to use that ammo. Uh, that becomes more of a political question. Uh, but of course, as we talked about before, there's no free lunch, and so the, to the extent that they use unlimited ammo, uh, that's also the potential for unlimited currency devaluation. Uh, and so at least up to the point where the market starts accepting it uh, and that they, they basically feel that they're, they're fine with that. And as an example right now, you know, J the yen has devalued versus the Fed because the, Japan is doing formal yield curve, yield curve control and the Fed's not. The Fed's still raising rates. Um, but you know, if you're an investor, you, know, you might not sell the yen too much because ironically, the, the JTBs have higher real rates than the treasuries counterintuitively, right? So, so inflation's lower in Japan. They've increased their money, broad money supply at a slower rate. Um, and, and at least at the current time, you know, even though that even though their nominal yields are lower, so is their inflation rate. And therefore their, their real yields are, you know, less negative. Even they're still negative, but they're less negative than the treasuries. Now investors still wanted to sell them um, for a variety of reasons, but that can eventually stabilize if they view Japan's economy as somewhat stabilizing. Um, so it doesn't mean hyperinflation in and of itself, but it just it basically means that they give up control over their uh, exchange rate. Now th they could combine that with a couple other finite levers. So for example, Japan, because they have a decent amount of foreign exchange reserves, right? They hold dollars, they hold gold, they hold some other other foreign assets. They can sell some of those assets to strengthen the yen. At the same time, at the same time as they're doing yield curve control, but that would be an example of you know their yield curve control is infinite ammo, but their foreign exchange reserves are finite ammo. So they have a couple levers that they can pull depending on how how disorderly they're willing to let currency devaluation happen, uh, and and a bunch of other variables. And then it also comes down to how good policymakers are 
at getting things they need in the real world. And so, for example, Japan is an energy importer. And so if Japan has a problem getting energy, that ruins the whole economy and it makes capital want to pull out even more. On the other hand, if they're able to make deals and secure energy uh, at some sort of reasonable cost, that allows our economy to keep functioning in a reasonably orderly manner and capital is more likely to you know, be willing to stay there because again, you're, you're doing opportunity cost. You're comparing it to Europe, you're comparing it to emerging markets, you're comparing it to the United States, and it might not be the worst place to be even though it might not be the best place to be. That's it's really interesting to think about it that way because I, I'm just in the case of somewhere like Japan where they do have unlimited ammo. It seems like you know the backstop to that, as you said, is the currency devaluation. But if that becomes too aggressive, then people are going to try to escape that and get into the lease. Again, I just see this like reinforcing the exorbitant privilege or or driving people towards dollars if things get really nasty. Um, so even in an environment where all currencies are depreciating, there'd still be kind of this pressure towards one, um, over time. I, so one more question on the, the ECB as a unified currency regime, but kind of sitting above the governments, right? Where you said the governments can't force them to do anything. Does this create a conflict of interest at the policy level and that, the more productive countries, like I guess Germany, for instance, would maybe be bearing the cost of um, liquidating, say, Italy's debt or something to that effect, if if the ECB is um, using these types of tools? Absolutely. And that's the big risk there, right? So, um, you know, for example, the ECB has a list of criteria that countries have to meet if they want to have that tool used. But the, the problem there is that if the way they list it, pretty much no country meets that anymore. Even Germany barely meets that criteria. I don't, I don't, you know, they don't meet the full list, let alone Italy. Um, and so they can still use it subjectively. And at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, even if they're not following the criteria, if their bond market gets disorderly, basically if they don't defend it, that's the end of the euro. Or at least that's the end of the euro as we know it. I mean, you, you could split to two euros, or you could, you know, Italy could leave. I mean, that's a that's the you know the third largest economy in the in the, you know, the the group. Um, so that's, that's more or less the end of the euro as we know it. Uh, and so even if you're not following the rules, they're still they have to decide: are we going to protect these bonds or not? And that that's kind of the been the flaw of the euro since the beginning over 20 years ago is that you have a monetary union without a fiscal union. And so in the United States, individual U.S. states have pretty low debt to GDP because most of their expenses, the big expenses are off their balance sheet. Their, their military, they don't, you know, they don't really have a giant military, Social Security, Medicare, most of that stuff is off their balance sheet and they have more local stuff on their balance sheet uh, that is that is you know much smaller. So most most U.S. states have single-digit uh, debt to GDP ratios. If you if you compare this total state debt compared to state GDP, a little bit higher if you include like you know pension liabilities. But then again, so would Europe's uh, debt be higher? Whereas in Europe, because you know most of that higher-level stuff is at the individual country level, uh, each each country has wildly different debt levels. Um, and so that makes the, that makes a union even harder. And so we we see the United States. I mean, it's hard enough to manage a, a union of fifty states. Uh, we often disagree with each other quite quite strongly, and Europe kind of has the same problem. 
you know, federations like, like in that sense are kind of inherently harder to manage. Uh, that, that's one thing that Japan has going forward is that they have lower levels of populism, lower levels of differences uh, across the country. Of course, they still have their political differences, um, but there's less moving parts to manage uh, compared to what we see in Europe or the United States, and especially Europe. That makes a lot of sense. So do you, just speaking speculatively, do you think at some point the European Union would need a fiscal union as well to make this thing work? I think this is really hard to say, especially on any sort of timeline, but I think it ultimately goes one of two directions. Either it, it, it breaks up, right? So they give up the monetary union, or at least some of the countries do, um, or it goes the other direction and it, 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 solidifies further and combines a fiscal union with a, with a monetary union. Um, given the level of chaos we're seeing now, I probably would incline towards the former, um, but, but I'm not a close kind of studying of, of European politics, so I'm not the best person to opine on that. But I do think that the current configuration is unstable, and it's eventually got to, eventually in the long arc of time, has to really go one way or the other, because it's you know, you, you can't just keep monetizing Italian debt forever, especially as the debt to GDP keeps climbing. Uh, and, e you know, even Italians aren't getting the, the, the huge benefit of this. I mean, they, their, their GDP in, it has not grown in like decades, right? I mean, they're, they're in this uh, problematic stagnation. Uh, and so really, e even the countries that we, we would think would be benefiting from it kind of are. It, it's, it's just a very messy system. Interesting. It will be fascinating to see what happens there because that, I mean, that is a case study of centralization, right? You put one central bank on top of a group of countries and then see if you can, I guess, it, if you're looking to centralize, you would ultimately look to unify those countries into one country. I, I, if that would be the term, I don't know what they would call it if they combine it into a fiscal union. Um, and you see inherent tensions there today. I mean, right you now, some Europeans don't like that broader, that higher level bureaucracy. You know, they view them as unelected people that are that are basically putting rules on them, either for the ECB or for the European Union as a whole. Um, and we also see it, both the United States and Europe a rise of populist politics, which is which is normal in fourth turnings uh, and in these long term debt cycle, you know, financial oppression, government liquidation sort of things. And in Europe's case, it keeps taking the form of, of politicians that want their country to, to consider leaving that, right? So in both Italy and then even in France, which would be the second largest economy in the union, um, there are politicians that could conceivably win, uh, you know, years ahead this decade that could, you know, those Boolean outcomes, those election outcomes can determine w which direction the whole fate goes in. Very fascinating to keep watching that as it develops. Um, I want to read just a couple of little uh, highlights I had here on these regulations we mentioned. One was interest rate ceilings. The authors wrote, after the Great Depression, interest payments on time and saving deposits were prohibited. The argument for imposing this restriction was that excessive competition for deposits generated instability in the financial system. So that's kind of interesting that they just completely did away with interest payment on all deposits, or I guess time lock and savings deposits. That's not something I can recall seeing in, in the modern age. Uh, you mentioned gold restrictions. 
obviously executive order 6102 1933 president roosevelt prohibited private holdings of gold coins bullion and certificates and that restriction was not lifted until about 40 years later um, just to give you an idea of how long <laughs> these things can last and then finally the the moral suasion i thought is so interesting and in that the authors write a situation in which the central bank attempts to persuade commercial banks of following certain policy even if there is no legal obligation to act accordingly there is a view among bankers that it is better to remain cooperative with the fed and you know this is captured in that old adage don't fight the fed um but it's i don't know it just strikes me that you know moral suasion is being i'm, I'm reminded of I think it was Nazi Germany rhetoric where, you know, buy the war bond to support the country. And it just gets in, it, it gets very tribal in a way when they're trying to figure out how to liquidate these debts. And it's not just the hard and fast mechanisms that are being used, but also this, this moral suasion. I just thought that was interesting that, that they have to make an appeal to someone's moral sense of duty. Uh, yeah, during the during these fourth turnings, you generally yeah you generally get this period of you know, propaganda becomes more prevalent, uh, and that, that can you know that can take different forms. Uh, in the United States, you know, movie making kind of shifted towards Washington D.C. temporarily. I mean, movies and, and TV shows had messages in them uh, to kind of promote that sort of view. Uh, and we discussed in prior episodes that it's easier to do financial oppression if you can get some sort of public and institutional buy-in. Right. If you, if you are basically just saying, yes, I'm authoritarian, we have to we have to do this. Screw you uh, that, you know, people are going to try to go around it. Whereas if you say, look, I mean, you know, we want to be we want to work this out. We want to beat the Nazis. We want to do this. Everybody get on board. Uh, it becomes easier to manage that system. And the closer they you know, the more that that some of their arguments have a grain of truth in it, the easier it is to make it work. Whereas if you're if you're just completely out of line of truth, I mean, if you're if you're the Nazis rather than one fighting the Nazis, it's even it's harder to get people to buy in after a certain period of time. Um, and so they they do their best to try to make those repressions match up with some degree of of you know, sense of fairness or reality. Um, but of course, if things don't go wrong, that's when they they drift more and more towards authoritarianism to lock people in. Yeah, it makes sense. That's that's a really interesting angle on how you know again corruption of money or let's say legal monopolization of money percolates up into the culture like you said that movie making actually sort of shifted gears towards uh supporting i guess this mainstream narrative right of of patriotism or whatever it may be yes um it's really interesting to think about that and we see that today if you look at chinese filmmaking um it, it's it's you know they often depict themselves as kind of underdogs fighting against Western powers, things like that. Very kind of nationalistic type of cinema. Um, and, and so, you know, and, and there's a whole period, I mean, in the United States, even now, if you want to use all sorts of like military equipment, basically the military gets to review your script and kind of approve it. Uh, and so that's a soft form of, of propaganda. I mean, the United States is not saying you have to have this in your movie. You're, we have freedom of speech. You can make a movie that's super critical of the US military uh, and US foreign interests. Uh, but your movie's gonna be a little worse because you're not gonna have the best equipment and the best experts and things like that. So if you wanna make the best possible cinematic experience, 
it's going to go through this this approval filter. And that's even today. That's the, you know, here in 2022. Wow, where can we learn more about that? I've never heard of this actually. Uh, you can Google. I mean, you can look up, for example, Top Gun Maverick had, had that. I mean, basically, they those sort of movies end up being useful recruitment tools. You know, they they make the military look more attractive, um, and that's able to to get people in. And of course, they want to manage their image, uh, you know, significantly. And so that's something you can link into. Basically, it's it's a it's a it's you know, benign propaganda doesn't sound great, but it's essentially, uh, you know, it's not saying what you have to do, but it's saying, hey, we have this, we we can, you know, help you make your movie, uh, but then we we get something in return for that. We we make yeah. sure that the movie is something that we are satisfied with. Gotcha. It's almost like a form of subliminal messaging, perhaps. Um, yeah. Interesting. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then, when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I, okay, I'm jumping up to page 13 in this PDF now. The authors write that the World War II debt overhang was importantly liquidated via the combination of financial repression and inflation, as we shall document. This was possible because debts were predominantly domestic and denominated in domestic currencies. So as you said, they had unlimited ammo. And the authors go on to write Importantly, nearly all new borrowing is domestic during that period. Capital controls are pervasive. The external debt that shows up in the books for the advanced economies is predominantly official, largely World War II or Reconstruction debts among governments. Um, and now, sorry, I should have read earlier, that was in regard to the 1970s discharge. And so what, okay, I guess, first of all, 
I don't know if we covered this yet or not in prior episodes, but just a debt overhang. What is that? How do we explain what that is in clear language? And then again, what would Bitcoin, how would Bitcoin have likely impacted this, the ability to liquidate this debt overhang if people had this option to, you know, something that couldn't be debased or manipulated? Yeah. So a debt overhang is when you have very high debt to GDP, and that could take the form of private debt or public debt. Uh, in this case, it was both, but by the time they were doing those, those hard uh, you know, types of yield curve control, that's primarily on the public debt. Um, but you kind of, as a, as a side effect, you liquidate a lot of private debt as well. Uh, so it kind of pushes that down. So it really impacts both at the end of the day. Um, and that's when basically you know, consumers and corporations are not borrowing because they're already rather indebted. And so you have this kind of big release valve happen and everybody suddenly has less debt relative to their income, relative to their asset values, um, because you, you've, you've, you've reduced it. You know, the debt is fixed in a number of currency units, while incomes and property values and, and things like that go up in the number of currency units. Um, and so, but of course, the, the downside is if you're on the other side of that, if you're the bondholders, if you're the savers, if you're the one who is overweight on the asset side, currency units, uh, you pay for that for people that have on the on the liability side. Um, and you know when we look at this, uh, you know if you had Bitcoin, th there's a couple factors that matter. One is the whole importance of Bitcoin is that for the first time in history, we have a credible way to send peer-to-peer -peer global value. Uh, whereas you know before Bitcoin, if I want to send money to a friend in Japan, I'm pretty limited how I can do that, right? I mean, in, in person, I can use cash or physical gold or whatever, but if I wanna go long distances, even inside the country, let alone internationally, if I wanna go pretty long distances, you know, I, you know, you could you could try to send a little bit of gold, you could try to send a little bit of cash, but that, that's inherently limited and it, it, it's, you know, it can get, it can get confiscated at the border. Um, but really I wanna do, if I wanna do wire transfers, I have to go through the banks. I have to have my bank send you know, a wire transfer to my friend in Japan's bank or wherever the recipient is, uh, it goes to the central banks because the central banks can, can disallow that kind of connection. Uh, and so if a country wants to do capital controls, they don't have to do them at the individual level too much. I mean, they can do a thing like, okay, nobody can own gold. We don't really know how to enforce it, but there's strict penalties, so most people won't do it. Um, but then the actual enforcement points are on the banks. They say, look, you can't send money to these you know, 20 countries. You can't send this this above this value to these countries. You can do all sorts of any sort of controls you want because you're controlling highly regulated, well-known institutions. Uh, whereas if you have technology that allows for peer-to-peer -peer money, uh, now the enforcement points are on the individual. And so now you have millions of enforcement points rather than thousands. And so it's much harder for the government to enforce, similar to how it was very hard to enforce a gold ban uh, with the exception being that, you know, it can go globally. Um, and so theoretically, uh, that makes it much harder to do capital controls. Uh, now, if they're authoritarian enough, they can still make it pretty hard. They can say, look, if, you, if you're caught using Bitcoin, you go to jail. If, you know, that will, that will eliminate a, a large percentage of people that are willing to use it. Um, but it's still hard to clear it out entirely. There's also things they can do around the margins where, you know, most, a lot of countries, for example, they have capital gains taxes and those are not just for inflation. Uh, 
And so let's say, for example, that you own gold and you're, let's say you're even allowed to own gold and the currency essentially gets cut in half. So your gold doubles. Uh, well, you pay cap, you know, you're, you didn't really gain purchasing power with your gold. You just maintained it in the face of currency devaluation. Um, but now if you go to sell it for something else, you have a capital gains tax. Uh, and so you pay that to the government. And so at the end of the day, you you did not even break even. You also took a haircut. If, if Assuming your gold just doubled to compensate for the fact the currency was cut in half. Uh, so after tax, you know, you, you also participated in kind of the, the, the group, everybody getting a haircut, even if you were owning the quote unquote right asset. Uh, now that's, it could be better if you own something that goes up more than the underlying currency devaluation. Uh, so if you pick the strongest possible asset, you have a better chance there. Um, there could be, if there's enough kind of political uniformity against that asset, they can do special taxes on it. They can say, okay, well, Bitcoin's taxed at 80% because we, we've kind of deemed that to be, you know, you know, let's say they're not willing to ban it. They don't think they can ban it, but they're like, you know, that that's, it, it's, it's for criminals. Uh, you know, it, it's like extremist money. Uh, we're gonna. It's not. It's not socially desirable. So we're gonna tax that at eighty percent, um, and that's that's the challenge. Um, I think that this this technology certainly improves the options that people have, but it's still no complete silver bullet against the social layer. Right? There still are laws. There still are challenges, and then of course it comes down to to what extent they're able to enforce it. Right? So in a lot of countries right now it's illegal for people to use dollars to buy things and it's illegal for merchants to accept dollars by customers to buy things and yet if you go to a lot of those countries they'll use dollars um, and so when a country has trouble financing itself it also generally has trouble enforcing things on an individual level um, we also saw i mean turkey recently announced that you know it's not illegal to own bitcoin or crypto but they, they made it so that you can't like use it for a medium of exchange. But how do you know how do you enforce that really? Um, it, it's very challenging, obviously. Uh, you know, there are people in Turkey that are just like, you know, you could even work for a foreign company and get paid in Bitcoin. And how, you know, how are they really gonna know? Uh, they have to do pretty extensive surveillance to really figure that out, which is expensive. And so when enough people are ignoring the rules, that essentially allows more people to get away with it. Um, and so it really comes down to, to what extent can the government get the majority? That, well, one, what extent does it have still some degree of financial stability and organization to enforce rules? And two, to what extent can it convince the majority of people to kind of stand together and then, you know, go after the, the outliers? And we, we, like another example for that is Russia uh, right now. So it, in Russia, if you, if you are critical of the war, you can get multiple years in prison. Uh, for quote unquote spreading misinformation, right? If you're a Russian and you say, look, you know, we're, we're committing atrocities in Ukraine, this is an unjust war, uh, they can be like, okay, you're spreading misinformation, you're going to jail. And there's actually cases where someone turns in their neighbor uh, over this, right? Because there's, there's a, a substantial percentage of, of public buy-in. And, and so really the, the odds of that sort of thing really come down to public buy-in. That, that's a big part of it. And I think that's why for Bitcoin in particular, you know, it's not just, it, the technology is a huge thing. That's that's what enables all the peer-to-peer -peer value transfer. That That's what enables optionality. That's what enables, you know, things to be different. But I also think public education, 
public advocacy uh, and, and basically moral arguments are also a key part of that. Because if you're if you're a minority uh, and the and the majority is kind of unified against you, it's still very hard to operate uh, in that type of environment. Yeah, there's a lot of great points there. Um, so I guess we could say that at least Bitcoin would increase the cost of enforcement to some extent yes. because it's just harder to enforce uh, yes. you know, whatever your 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 mechanism is, whether it's taxation or, or banning it as a medium of exchange, whatever it may be. And maybe another way, so if you say that increases the cost of enforcement, another way of saying that perhaps is that it's it's reducing the profitability of coercion because the less the more tax revenues a government can ex extract with less enforcement points the more profitable it would be but if it becomes more expensive to enforce you know holding tax revenue roughly equal that that it's it's a lower roi basically for the yes. tax authority um but I, I like that last point is really important it's that you do need this mass or mainstream or public buy-in to an anti-Bitcoin narrative to really single it out, right? And tax it at 80 or 90% or, or whatever the, the special circumstances would be. So this, again, you're back to this, a narrative that has to be sold to the public. And then it would be, uh, the onus would be on, I guess, people like us, people that are just doing, you know, talking, <laughs> thinking through these things to kind of counter that imposed narrative. And hopefully, um, I guess, you know, it's interesting because I don't feel like we're propagandizing Bitcoin when we talk about it, because you're, it seems like, you know, mostly truth. We're like, okay, this is money you can't print, printing money and financial repression. All these things we're exploring here are in, inherently bad for the individual. So this is a better option for you. But I guess in some way we are, propagandizing to the extent that you're helping create a counter narrative to uh, whatever states would be creating to try and fight this thing. So how yeah. much, how much of it is, is how much of the, I guess the widespread success of Bitcoin do you think is driven by the, the battle at that narrative layer or the ideological layer? It's hard to put a percent on it. I mean, obviously, the if there was no technology, if the technology was not as good, um, then the narratives doesn't matter, right? So, so the, the at the end of the day, technology is everything. Um, but technology alone can still fail. I mean, if if you know if you know if it's hard enough to use, if not enough people get it, if they're distracted by altcoins and and scams in the in the broader space. Uh, that can make it hard. And obviously one of the attack vectors is energy, right? So especially during an, an energy crisis, uh, that's been one of the, you know, kind of attack vectors uh, to go after Bitcoin. And I, that, you know, everyone has their own areas of research, right? So, uh, you know, I never focus on the nuances of soft forks and, and, you know, what makes, what makes one algorithm better than another algorithm. That's not my area, but with my electrical engineering background, I do focus on the energy component to some extent. Uh, to make sure that, you know, public is, there are people out there basically, I would say doing the opposite, they're, that they're using propaganda to overstate the problems of Bitcoin's energy or, or things like that. They're like, you know, they'll say, 
every Bitcoin transaction costs, you know, like a whole year's worth of cars, fuel or you know, whatever, whatever the thing is, even though it doesn't actually map onto reality of how the network works. And so I, I do think it's important to push back on that because even if just some percentage of people that read it are then like, wait a second, that's not what I, that's not what I was told by the media. Or that's not what I was told by a government official. That's not, I was, I was told by other people. Maybe I should look more into this. Maybe this is more nuanced than I thought. And, you know, one thing I've been happy to see, for example, is, you know, Bitcoin initially, I mean, you had cypherpunks and you have libertarians and you have some conservatives, you know, there is a wave of say progressive Bitcoiners. And I, I think it's important to nurture that, right? So some of them, there, there have been a number of them that say were anti-Bitcoin because they, they, they thought honestly that it's, a, it's an energy problem, that there must be a more efficient way to do this. But then due to educational efforts, they say, okay, wait, proof of work and proof of stake are not the same thing. Uh, you know, the energy component is maybe not as, not as problematic as I thought. Maybe it, it can even have some upsides uh, in terms of being a, a flexible demand response. And then you get progressive Bitcoiners on board. And we actually see, a, you know, a decent number of them now. And so I, I think that those types of educate, especially when you have the truth on your side, if, if, if you're just laying out facts in, in the most persuasive and, and kind of compelling case you can, the clearest way you can, uh, you're, you're going to get some percentage of, of intellectually honest people from multiple different backgrounds. And, and so I do think that while the technology, you know, nothing matters if the technology is not there, the technology can still fail if it doesn't get some sort of critical mass to avoid some of the you know, the hardest, or even if it, even if it wins in the long run, you know, it can still, it can take much longer to win because of that social layer and individual users might not win. Right. So even, even if the technology wins in a long arc of time, doesn't mean that it wins with an individual user's lifetime, or they could be, you know, in some way persecuted because of it. Uh, and so basically making it life easier for users of the network uh, and reducing you know, the frictions against the success of the network, I, I think that social layer is very important. Yeah, it's it's a weird one for me because I know like towards the end of human action, Mises makes this point that all things being equal, a tool that's better than another tool, you know, a shovel that digs holes faster or whatever, will tend to just outcompete in the marketplace, right? People will just favor the tool. Again, cost, everything else being equal, they'll choose the tool that most enhances productivity towards whatever activity the tool is designed for. But he goes on to make this other point that that's not necessarily the case with our modes of social organization, right? That you can organize a lot of people under communism for a really long time, and they won't really understand that capitalism is a superior mode of allocating resources until communism like blows up basically so it's not it's not the same and i don't know bitcoin's a weird one because it's like where does it fall it's it is just a technology you know it's better money in a lot of respects but it also has this ideological component um that you know you see it expressed in multiple ways people are diehard religious zealots for bitcoin or they're you know total bitcoin derangement syndrome as we call it they just you know, think it's the most evil thing ever. So um, I don't know how to understand the success of Bitcoin. Like you said, it's hard to quantify between the, I guess, the technological layer and the social layer. I don't even know where you draw the line necessarily because it, with money, you know, money is such an inherently a social construct 
Um, anyways, I'm just thinking out loud, but it's it's a interesting one to try and parse. Yeah, it's a good set of questions. I, I don't think there is any firm line. I, one way I would phrase it is that the, you know, let's say you're comparing two technologies. Obviously, the gap in terms of how much better one technology is than another increases the odds that it succeeds against friction. Like, let's say there's a shovel that's, you know, 10% better than another shovel, but the slightly worse shovel is like government approved, right? That right. shovel might win because it's not a gigantic difference at the end of the day. Um, uh, whereas if one shovel is like 10 times better, uh, people are going to eventually figure it out and ignore um, the, the social consensus. But look, it's so obviously better. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's why with Bitcoin, it's it's part, you know, again, whatever kind of talents or knowledge people have. I mean, if, if they're, you know, if, if they're good at programming, one way they can do it is by making it better, right? So the better Bitcoin is for the user, the easier mm -hmm. it is to use, faster it is right so so lightning network the more liquid it is the better it is to use the more convenient the less chance they have of like losing their keys because it's just uh, it's unclear how to use it properly the better that technology is the harder it is to ignore in the long run the whereas the clunkier it is to use the less perfect it is um there's that's there's just more frictions where where someone could use something else or just you know not bother um and so i i think that really comes down to the whole ecosystem they're they're Everyone has a part to play in in shaping reality. That that's not just a Bitcoin thing. That's just you know we, they they all have a part to play. And, and as it pertains to Bitcoin, programmers and developers have a part to play. VCs have a part to play because they're funding those those types of projects that you know might not be super super profitable, but might might be good for the Bitcoin network. Um, and then and then just writers or influencers or whatever you want to call them. I mean they they you know they're usefulness can be their writing or, or their their speaking ability to then take some of the subjects that those technical people are doing and try to explain the truth to that to the public, right? So I think that, you know, different people have kind of a role to play and it's the combination of just how much, how good the technology is, number one, not just the base layer, but the whole ecosystem of how to interact with it. And then number two, that whole social layer. And, and there is, like you said, there's, there's, there's not really a hard line there. Yes, that's a really good point, actually. So it has a lot to do with the relative superiority of Bitcoin to alternative monies, let's say, or assets. And that delta does seem to be growing not only as Bitcoin-related technology improves, right? It becomes easier to custody and store and transact and you know, you're you're abstracting away a lot of the complexity. And you, we've seen that happen with Bitcoin, you know, using using Bitcoin in 2014 was a whole different ball game than what it is today. You know, it's much more accessible, let's say to, to the mainstream market participant. But I would, I, and I, I like that point a lot because I would say on the other side of that is with every dollar printed, you're also diverging that utility further, right? That the dollar is, it's self-destructing basically in slow motion, right? Or, or whatever fiat currency you want to compare that to. And yes. And in relationship with the perfect supply integrity of Bitcoin, that would mean the ratio of Bitcoin's utility to that fiat is growing as well. So it's got this, I guess it's being attacked from two sides. Um, and then of course the counterforce to all that is what we're talking about, the government, um, you know, regulation or, or banning, things like that. Yeah, and I, I think it also matters with Bitcoin versus altcoins, right? Because one of, one of the big challenges with gold for decades is that people could make paper claims on gold 
because it's pretty centralized and it's it's hard to take custody of. Um, and then more, you know, people could think they own gold, but really they own paper gold. Uh, and it's kind of like musical chairs where, you know, if really kind of push came to shove, not, not every single holder of those paper claims would be able to get their hands on physical metal. And I think the Bitcoin equivalent of that, so Bitcoin, because it's more portable, kind of solves for that. Uh, you know, the, the, the paper market for Bitcoin is much smaller than the Bitcoin market cap, at least at least currently so far. Um, but I think the kind of, all, you know, the, the, the similar version is that anyone can make up an altcoin and you can then divert capital that would otherwise go into Bitcoin into a whole bunch of other projects. And some of them have pretty big VC backing and can last for years and, you know, maybe, maybe some of them will last for decades. Right. And so all of that can potentially slow down Bitcoin adoption, obfuscate Bitcoin adoption and, and represent at least, you know, if not a, a long term threat, at least like a timing threat. Uh, and then you get into, you know, kind of um, uh, political buy-ins, Right. So so if you are a proof of stake network, you have now an incentive to be like to get policymakers to go after proof of work. They look how energy inefficient that is. Uh, our network's proof of stake. It's you know it's ESG certified, whatever the case may be. Go after proof of work, and then even you know among Bitcoin, the alternative view is that you know Bitcoin is is does not pass the Howey test. So in the United States, there's almost no way that it could be considered a security, whereas many other altcoins they, they would be you know considered securities. And so some Bitcoiners face a challenge where if they're like anarchists, maybe they're like, well, who cares what a security is? Or they say, well, let's let's use that weakness against our altcoin opponents and be like, well, you should crack down on securities because it hurts almost anything other than Bitcoin and maybe a few other forks and, you know, little, little tokens. But, you know, the vast, the vast majority of the space then is, is harmed by regulations that go after unregistered securities. And so there is that kind of, that, that's where the social layer comes in, right? Because different sides and different factions in each side are kind of picking battles about how they want to attack the other network. And so it's it's Bitcoin versus altcoins, it's altcoin versus altcoins, it's Bitcoin versus governments, it's it's you know Bitcoin versus gold. It, it, there's, there's multiple things. There's like a multi-part battle that, that goes on, and that's kind of part of you know the market testing. How, how how much power does this thing have? How much better is it than all of its competitors? How much better is it uh, than everything else? Because if if the technology is is way better, and if the social layer is there, it can get you know past that friction. Yeah, it's incredible how ideological those battle lines are, you know, and you see it, like I said, you see it on both sides, we've got, you know, toxic Bitcoin maximalism, and you've got, I guess we could almost say a lot of these alternative crypto assets are sort of like we were describing earlier that, you know, the state would try to create a certain narrative to counter uh, the workarounds people might have to these regulations and maybe, you know, altcoins are just trying to benefit from the success of, because you know, I think the common, the ideal candidate that an altcoin project would be looking for is someone that is trying to catch the next Bitcoin, right? They think whatever Shibu Inu is one penny and they have this unit bias thing in their mind, like, oh, well, Bitcoin went from one penny to $70,000, maybe this will do that too. Um, and so, yeah, and it's, it's also complicated because I, in one way, I, I wouldn't consider anything to be a threat to Bitcoin as, in terms of money. Like you can't even make a money that's 
competitive to Bitcoin because Bitcoin sort of maximize all these dimensions of money. So there's not necessarily a threat, but it could be an obfuscation or a delay or a just like a trap for people to fall into that they were trying to go into Bitcoin perhaps, but then you run into this uh, parade of charlatans trying to sell you other things. And so- yeah, and, and, it, and it becomes a mindshare battle. I mean, if you look at Twitter, for example, Anthony Hopkins and a lot of other famous people have .eth in their in their Twitter handles, right? You would not have, how many people had on their bingo card two years ago that, that you know, some of these types of celebrities would have .eth you know, that Snoop Dogg would have like a, an NFT for his avatar or that Anthony Hopkins would, would you know, have .eth, right? So, so there is, and that can last for years, right? So that is a timing attack, right? So, you know, uh, an intellectual person could be like, well, I mean, Ethereum has difficulty bombs, right? So how can it really be money? It's, it's, the, de it's the developers have control. They can push updates to you. They're changing to proof of stake, which is totally different. Uh, but if, if that for years directs capital into that uh, and then directs attacks on Bitcoin, that is a long-term friction, for example, that Bitcoin has to deal with. And I think the, the, the smaller coins, their battle is, as you said, they want to they play the unit bias game. They want to go on the fact that you know, Bitcoin is not going to go up 100x in, in two years, uh, whereas a tiny little altcoin might. Uh, it won't be very liquid, but you know, if, you, if, you, you know, if they get in early and they get out in a spike, you know, that it can work like that. And so some of them are playing that game. The bigger ones, I think, are, are playing more like the game of like, they want to be incorporated by the banks. They want to basically become the system. Uh, and so they, they it's, it kind of becomes an extension of fiat. Uh, and so they, they can implement KYC AML directly on the chain. Uh, they can be kind of regulatory captured. And I think that's, that's, that's that risk to, to consider that if they get big enough, that's, that's another type of attack vector. Yeah. The, I, I've read some people's writing about that, that they've hypothesized that Ethereum, for instance, could be a, an attack vector on Bitcoin. The state can obviously take a large position on the Ethereum network and use, try to push that or something derivative of that versus Bitcoin. Um, yeah. And I guess the through line in all of this is, you know, again, there's so much loaded in this word decentralized because it's being thrown around everywhere in the space, you know, decentralize this, decentralize that. But it seems like everything we're discussing here consists of centralized attacks on the only actually decentralized network, which is Bitcoin, right? You either And that's, yeah, and that's moral suasion. That's actually a good, a good tie into what, what, to what extent does the social layer matter, right? So if decentralization matters to people, if that if that's something that really matters, you know that can make Bitcoin more resistant to those types of attacks. Whereas if, if more people buy into the idea that decentralization doesn't matter, uh, and the government's able to say, okay, maybe you don't want to fight Bitcoin, maybe you want to, you know, promote this other blockchain, you want to get uh, celebrities to kind of endorse it, and you know that might be a smarter attack vector, right? Than just saying we're going to ban all crypto, we're going to ban Bitcoin. They can they can kind of instead bet on another horse and see if that works. And so all, all those are attack vectors potentially, or or adoption risks, or adoption frictions, you can call them, uh, in terms of how long Bitcoin takes and what the probability is that Bitcoin eventually kind of breaks free from all of its all of the mess out there. And, and I think, you know, from a Bitcoin perspective, what you generally want to see is is that people realize the difference that they that they understand the small nodes and proof of work and 
you know, no difficulty bombs makes for, you know, self-sovereign money and that other ones don't. Uh, and that, you know, some of them might root for regulators to go after ones that have centralized tax services or, or look like securities. Other ones might not want that ideologically. Um, and, and so there's different scenarios for how this works out. Um, and then there's also other scenarios where, you know, the, the attack vectors get worse. I mean, they go after proof of work mining. They go after, they, you know, the recent European term was, you know, unhosted wallet, right? I mean, it, it, that, that really comes, that's a social layer thing because that comes down to word choice. Right, unhosted wallet doesn't sound good. It's like, well, we don't want unhosted wallets. That that's that's what terrorists would use, right? So, um, but that, that that so that's that's a matter of kind of controlling public opinion. So then it comes down to people pushing back against that and be like, okay, here's multiple reasons why unhosted wallet is a nefarious term, and it's better. You know, you can call them signers, right? You can call wallets like you know signers instead of wallets. There's all sorts of things you can do uh, to kind of you know because language is important. Uh, and so I think that there are multiple vectors here, and it it could be, you know, either going after a competitor. It could be saying, okay, you can use Bitcoin, but we want you to use Bitcoin in our walled gardens, right? So you can you can own it on exchanges, you could have it in the apps, uh, but you know if you take it outside of that, that's an unhosted wallet. I mean, only only terrorists would want to do that. Um, and so yeah, and every jurisdiction is going to be a little bit different, but jurisdictions also work together in the modern era, right? So so the Bank of International Settlements, for example, helps dozens and dozens of countries figure out their financial regulations. And there are there are these bodies that that, you know, kind of create regulations that multiple countries adopt. And so I, I do think that there is a role to play for that social layer. That that is a key thing to focus on. I agree completely. And the another thing that came up for me as you were saying that is the more um obvious let's say centralized power shows its power right if they really try to be overt in their attacks on bitcoin that they're going to be highlighting the value of decentralization right because you're show, you're they're quite literally exhibiting the thing that people want to stay away from right of these overt power moves against them so there might it see the smarter play on behalf of centralized powers would be to do more of this kind of veiled you know, uh, moral, morally camouflaged is typically a, a path they take, like with the energy argument or getting a lot of celebrities to support Ethereum or whatever else. Um, that could be more of the the soft workaround versus the hard power move yes. that would hopefully not highlight the need for decentralization because people that don't, mostly people that haven't, I guess, either studied it deeply or experienced the pain themselves, right? Lived through a hyperinflation or something like that. These terms centralized, decentralized don't hold a lot of water, but if you've lived through it or studied it deeply, you, you come to realize, you know, wow, that has a lot of value, something that no one can manipulate or control or corrupt. Um, and yeah, point well taken on the euphemisms too, that, you know, I would say even inflation and deflation, these terms that we use, I don't know who decided that we we're going to use them, but they're pretty bad terms because Inflation sounds great and it's terrible. Deflation sounds terrible and it's better than inflation, at least from a price standpoint. So um, maybe as part and parcel of that propaganda, we we end up with a lot of these euphemisms. Um, yeah, imagine if we just called inflation debasement. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that, that would change the whole 
you know, the Federal Reserve said we had a, we have a two percent debasement target per year, or even better, theft. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the language matters, and, and and to the extent that people can shape language, uh, that can shape ideas around that language. Right. So. Yeah, that's a great point. So the social layer, I mean, it's it's a it's a game or a battle of language, frankly, and we have to uh, hopefully tell the truth in a um a nice packaging i suppose okay quite the um detour there i'll come back to the paper i'm on page 15 in the pdf and authors are writing about the general real interest rate trends and they write as discussed in uh opstfield and taylor and others liberal capital market regulations the accompanying market determined interest rates the international and international capital mobility reached their heyday prior to World War I under the umbrella of the gold standard. World War I and the suspension of convertibility and international gold shipments is brought in more generally a variety of restrictions on cross-border transactions were the first blows to the globalization of capital. Global capital markets recovered partially during the roaring 20s, but the Great Depression followed by World War II Put the final nails in the coffin of laissez-faire banking. So, you know, I think just here is kind of reiterating the point that we haven't had real free markets I mean, probably ever. You know, there's a lot of people that make the point that the whole term free market is kind of silly because it's just never really existed. There's always been this political apparatus that the market is working against. Um, but at least in banking specifically, you know, there was a there was a, a free banking era to some extent, but that was pretty well uh, put in the coffin, as the authors say here, following World War II. Yeah, and I think that a way I've described it before is that you know for thousands of years, commerce and and bare asset money moved at the same speed at the same speed, right? And so, uh, you know, people. They 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 did commerce to the you know the extent that they walk on foot they ride on horses they ride on ships and the gold and silver coins also moved at that same space even if you were only doing ledger transactions the ledger still had to move at that speed right you couldn't just beam the ledger to someone um, and then with the invention of telecommunications technology which which you know the 1800s uh, by by the end of the 1800s they had laid undersea cables right so you could send communications pretty much instantly between you know, North America and Europe and other other parts of the world, uh, and so bank ledgers could could update things uh, much faster than physical bare assets could move around and then be audited when they move and secured and you know the whole ordeal, not just moving them, but but moving them and managing the chain of custody, and so that art that that you know that difference in speed made it so that gold and silver had to be abstracted in order to keep up. And with that abstraction comes arbitrage, and eventually that enabled governments to drop, you know, the 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 peg, uh, to manipulate the peg to gold and silver. And so, really, starting with World War One is when we saw that. But ultimately, it was it was because technology enabled it. Uh, I think we talked about before in the Platonic idea of money. If people could, you know, if there was like if gold, you you could just teleport gold to each other, and someone tried to introduce paper money, you'd be like, get out of here, right? But it's because that paper money is in some ways better. 
uh, you know, especially when you combine it with that telecommunications ledger technology, um, people are willing to use it. Uh, and so what, what Bitcoin introduces is that bare assets can now move at the same speed of commerce. Um, you know, base layer can move in, in minutes and lightning can move in seconds, split seconds. Um, and so now we have bare asset money that makes it harder to arbitrage. Uh, and so it becomes a matter of reaching critical mass. Uh, and so you, you, could, you could see a scenario where if Bitcoin is successful, it, it can kind of bring that back that 1800s environment of relatively free global capital flows, where it's pretty hard to restrict uh, those international types of transactions. Uh, but, you know, it has to get big enough and liquid enough and pass the kind of um, the social layers, you know, the governments that would make that very, very hard to use in any sort of official layer. Uh, they, they would kind of push it down to the black market layer. Uh, and so it becomes that kind of long grind to get, you know, broad enough and recognized enough in order to actually open up those types of, of capital flows. That's a great point that we, to the extent perhaps we close the window on arbitrage, you make the market more free. You know, you, you're, uh, what are, the information is more symmetric things, you know, as we said, you know, bearer asset money is now moving across the network rather than promises. So there's less opportunity to arbitrage, uh, IOUs and things like this. Um, that's a, I think that's a really great framing to put that. Um, I will jump to page 60 now and read one more excerpt. The authors write, binding interest rate ceilings on deposits, which kept real ex-post deposit rates even more negative than real ex-post rates on treasury bills, induced domestic savers to hold government bonds. What delayed the emergence of leakages in the search for higher yields, apart from prevailing capital controls, was that the incident, the incidence of negative returns on government bonds and on deposits was more or less a universal phenomenon at the time. So, I mean, there's just, people just had no other option really, right? So it, it, there wasn't... You might have been taking a haircut, but there was really nowhere else to go other than kind of exiting the market economy and burying gold in your backyard. And even that carried certain risk and and whatnot. Um, yes. And then, you know, I guess presumably just, bit, again, Bitcoin as an option, as a store value option that wouldn't have, it may have negative returns, you know, real returns over some time period, but it definitely wouldn't be orchestrated negative real returns. Yeah. Uh, via government liquidation that just gives you know it's the the exit option right that would presumably restore some uh free market dynamic to this entire uh enterprise yeah i think that's a good way to put it and you know back in the 40s you know people are smart so they kind of sort through their potential release valves and see see what's available to them so gold was blocked but of course you know people can still kind of do it um as that paragraph pointed out bank deposits were below T-bill rates. Uh, T-bill rates were below T-bond rates. Uh, and so there basically was an encouragement to go into government debt, um, but also actually a really big release valve ended up being real estate. Uh, you saw a rapid appreciation in real estate values. That was, you know, that was, that was where the currency devaluation kind of showed up, I think, the quickest, um, where that was, that was still a legally and socially acceptable way to store wealth. 
Um, and, and so that was one of the more convenient ways to, to you know, escape the system uh, to some extent. Uh, and the stock market could have been another. Uh, the challenge there was that during World War II, you had a lot of uncertainty around the profitability of different corporations. Uh, and so the valuations are actually pretty low. Uh, but long term, if people put their money in the stock market, they also, you know, especially at those low valuation levels, they eventually did pretty well. It just took longer to materialize compared to real estate. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's kind of socially acceptable types of stores of value uh, compared to others. So ones that are portable, self-custodial are the ones that are kind of frowned upon. I think uh, 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 Zoltan Posar called that outside money, right? So So things like gold or Bitcoin would be outside money. Things that you know you can, you can you can self custody. You can change around peer to peer. Obviously, different speeds between the two, but but you still technically can for both. Those would be outside money. Those are those are frowned upon. Whereas inside money is basically you're in the permission system. You're in kind of the AOL walled garden financial environment. You have a bank account. You own securities, stocks and treasuries, and a 401k and, and things like that. Or if you have real estate, you know that's in some ways it's outside money, but it's 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 not liquid, it's not portable, it's not fungible, uh, it's known, it's trackable, it's taxable easily. Uh, and so that's still kind of effectively inside money. And and so basically people will divert to whatever's, you know, kind of an option for them. Yeah, great point. And I would presume that governments, central governments like real estate being the socially accepted store of value, because you know, as you just said, real estate effectively impossible to hide, therefore pretty easy to tax. Yes. Um, and this too, this also speaks to how the character of money changes human perceptions in a way. Because you know, I think corporate real estate's been the best performing asset for like the past fifty years. I don't know if that's still unbroken, but there was a long period where it was. Um, and you know the standard mentality among many consumers today is that well real estate just goes up it always goes up you know so a lot of people treat real estate as their side hustle and all these other things but that's not all of that is a function of monetary debasement right it's not that real estate is necessarily going up every year everywhere all the time it's just you know they're not printing more land basically exactly and the government also can incentivize that uh, by, for example, giving tax breaks for mortgages, for example, they can do various ways to reduce the cost of capital. And so, you know, basically the, the best type of debt for the typical consumer is a low fixed rate 30 year mortgage. Obviously in recent months, uh, those rates went up quite a bit, but for the most part, uh, for the past several decades, mortgage debt has been this kind of cheap, safe type of debt that, that a consumer can use. Um, and so that their equity can grow pretty pretty significantly. And so when someone is comparing their options and they're saying they're looking at gold, and they're like, well, you know, I could just buy this house and I, I get all these benefits. Uh, it kind of just does, it, it directs capital, uh, you know, to where they want it to be. And, and whereas gold actually has penalizing tax rates, right? So it, it taxes like a collectible. So the long-term capital gains tax is higher than it would be, you know, for most other assets. And so that that divide is like a subtle way of trying to get more capital to be in real estate rather than into gold. They they basically perceive real estate as safer, more productive, uh, you know, easier to track. Uh, and so, 
that that's kind of a part of a financial oppression government liquidation is that you basically create a hierarchy or you shape a hierarchy of of where people are going to put their money um and the, of course the big challenge of real estate is you know we've been using the united states as a key example i mean they, they've been winning thing after thing right over this whole timeline we're talking about um, whereas if you're holding real estate in a country that loses a war um, or that experiences some protracted long-term inflation problem like Argentina or Turkey or something like that, um, that real estate's not going to hold up as well as if you had a global desirable real estate, right? So even people in those countries, the real estate is less, you know, it's still an option for them. But as, when you add, when you combine that fact with rent controls and, and things like that, uh, you know, there are various ways to to make that hard. Like I did an analysis of stagflation in Turkey um, and showed that, you know, I kind of just tracked, okay, if you were Turkish, what, and what would you do? So if you held Lira, obviously you got devalued. If you bought Turkish stocks, you did okay uh, in dollar terms. I mean, you didn't really do well, but you didn't lose it all. Um, if you bought Turkish real estate, you did a little bit better, but again, not fantastic. If you bought gold, you generally did even better. And if you bought Bitcoin, you did even better, depending on what timeline you're looking at, if you look at a long enough timeline. And so generally for a lot of those countries, unless you're the one that's just winning a lot, like unless you're in Switzerland or United States and some of these countries that have kind of been on top over and over again, uh, generally that outside money works better than that type of local real asset uh, because that local real asset has trouble getting a monetary premium because foreigners don't really want to buy it, uh, you know, at least not at, at high valuations. Um, we also see that in times of weak money or financial oppression, luxury goods get monetized. So we saw during Weimar, for example, uh, people would, would pour their wealth into art. Uh, and then when that, you know, that hyperinflation ended and they went to like the next currency, um, there was like a, a popping of the art bubble because people then suddenly felt confident to put their money back into currency to some extent again, and outside of these super high art valuations. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a theme. And, and we, we see less extreme versions of that today, where because we have globally weak money, we monetize art, we monetize the stock market, we keep putting money every paycheck into the S&P 500. We don't even look at the companies. We're just like, I don't know, it's better than dollars for, for a 10-year period. So I'll just pour, I'll just shove money in there. I'll shove money into my home. I'll buy a second home. We monetize all these other things that are that have some degree of scarcity uh, compared to the currency. But of course, we then we sacrifice fungibility. We sacrifice uh, you know kind of long term liquidity. We we create more taxable events uh, for ourselves by by using these other kind of less ideal stores of value that compared to liquid money, but still better than fiat currency. And so. Historically and currently, that, that's kind of a common trend during financial oppressions where people will go for the release valves, uh, but especially if you're not one of the winning areas, um, a lot of the domestic ones are not fantastic. Yeah, it's extremely interesting how, how much the introduction of something like Bitcoin causes you to rethink through all these dynamics that we've seen historically. Um, okay, let's put a button on it here. I think we can maybe revisit some other sections of this paper in our next session, but a lot of it gets into the heavy duty mathematics. Maybe we can talk about a few of the charts or something. 
And then um, we'll plan on talking about your piece next titled, What is Money? Which obviously is very relevant to this show. Uh, it's an excellent written work and I look forward to talking to you about that. Um, I think we did this last time and my audience probably knows you, but just in case they don't, could you please let them know where they can find out more about you or your work? I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm at lindalden.com and I'm active on Twitter at Lynn Alden Contact. Thank you so much, Lynn.